Now I'll be reading from Psalm 8, which is found on page 546 of the Pew Bibles. I'll just give you a moment to find that. For the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning, everyone. Excuse me, and welcome to this first uh, talk of our Easter series. Now, I don't know about you, But to me, it has felt like a very, very long winter indeed. Does that sound right? It's felt like a really long winter, hasn't it? But the daffodils are out. The lambs are gambling in the fields. The chocolate eggs are back in the shops. The clocks have gone forward, and it's still absolutely freezing, which means that in England, spring is here, and uh, life is returning to our world. And of course, these glimpses of new life on the dead branches of winter remind us as Christians of the resurrection of Jesus. In our series in the book of Matthew, we've been hearing Jesus predict time and time again that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die and be killed on a Roman cross, and that he would rise again after three days. It was the central event of his life. It was what he came to do. And I suppose even if you're, you're not a Christian here this morning, even if you're brand new to Christian things, you might know this about Jesus, that he died on the cross and that he came back to life. That is the claim at the very heart of Christianity, the historical death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But what does it mean? What are we supposed to make of it? Why does it matter to us? That's what we're going to be exploring over the next four weeks. And we're going to take as our starting point something that the Apostle Paul, at the beginning of his letter, wrote to the church in Rome. He writes to Rome, telling them that that he has good news, that he has a gospel, that it is his life's mission to tell to others. And this is what he says about that gospel on the screen. He says, it's the gospel regarding God's Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was declared to be the son of God. Now that phrase son of God is not something that Paul made up. It's a title which has the weight of the whole Bible behind it. And over the next four weeks, we're really only going to scratch the surface of what it means. But I'm hoping and praying that as we do, 
you will get a bigger view of Jesus. That however interesting you thought he was, you'll see that he's more interesting. That however big you thought his claims were, that they're bigger. That however worthy you think he is of your trust and of your worship and of your your commitment, he is more worthy. I don't know whether you are a committed follower of Jesus or whether you are wavering in your trust of him or whether you're weighing his claims seriously or whether this is all new and you don't know what's going on yet. Wherever you are, whatever you think of Jesus already, I want to tell you he's better than you think. And so that's my hope and prayer for the next four weeks. Now we're going to be jumping a bit around the Bible. Uh, that's not what you, we usually do as a church. We usually take one book or one section of a book in the Bible and work through it slowly. And there's really, really good reasons for that. This will be a little bit different. <clears throat> However, we are going to start at the very beginning. I am reliably informed that it is a very good place to start. And that is because the very first person who is described as a son of God in the Bible is the very first person. Adam is called the Son of God in Luke chapter 3. And we'll see why as we go along today. It's because of the role of human beings in our world. In creation, in God's design for this universe, human beings have a unique and crucial position. That's why we're looking at this psalm today. We're going to see King David reflecting on what it means to be a human being. To be, as we'll see, a Son of God. So let's begin with Psalm 8. And we'll think about the majestic sons of God. In this psalm, we find David out on his rooftop looking at the stars. Now, if you're an experienced Bible reader, you'll know that David didn't always use his rooftop for looking at stars. Occasionally, he looks at other things. So we can be thankful for this. I wonder if you've ever had the privilege of being out on a clear night with no light pollution and looking up and just seeing millions and billions of stars seeing into the heart of the Milky Way. Ever seen it? It's breathtaking, isn't it? And David looks at that view and he responds to that view with a hymn of praise to the God he knows made it all. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the vantage point of earth, David looks at the starry heavens and praises the God who is above them, who is greater even than the galaxies and the nebulae and the black holes, because he's the one who made them all. He is so great that, verse 2, when even the smallest children take his name on their lips, his enemies flee. Look at the stars, David says, and you see the majesty of God's. And so what is a human being In relation to that, in contrast to the trillions of stars and planets, in contrast to the apparently infinite scale and just sheer enormousness of space, what is special about little old us? David is not the only person to find himself overwhelmed by the massive disparity between the grandeur of the whole universe and the smallness of mankind. The astronomer and author Carl Sagan once wrote a book called Pale Blue Dot. The title references a photograph of the Earth taken by the Voyager space probe at a distance of some 3.7 billion miles. In the photograph, Earth is a tiny, unnoticeable, insignificant, pale blue dot. In fact, we can see it on the screen. I don't know if you can uh, see the pale blue dot. It is there. Sagan wrote this. 
Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. See Sagan's point? We are so small in the universe that we can't possibly be significant and we can't possibly be loved. There is nothing in the universe that's going to save us. The cavalry is not coming. We have to solve our problems ourselves and frankly our problems are not that important because we are so small. Well, David didn't need the Voyager space probe to tell him that we're small. He got there 3,000 years earlier. But as he considers life on the pale blue dot, he doesn't see the blind, pitiless indifference of that vast impersonal universe. No. He sees the majestic glory of the personal God, and he sees that that God cares. Look at verse 3 with me. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? That's Sagan's question, isn't it? What is man? We're so small, so insignificant, surely. But look how David goes on. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. As David reflects on humanity's smallness, he doesn't conclude that we're therefore meaningless. Rather, he is staggered at God's graciousness to us. He is astonished that the majestic God should stoop so low as to care for little human beings. David has seen that care in his own life. He's seen that care in the history of his nation. He has a hundred stories from his own experience and from hearing the great stories of Scripture that the God who made the heavens indeed does frequently come from elsewhere to save us. Carl Sagan sees pitiless indifference when he looks at the universe. David sees fatherly care. And because David has read his Bible, he also knows that a human, being have, human beings have significance that far outstrips their size. Let's read on, verse 5. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. David's thinking back there to the creation of mankind as recounted in the book of Genesis. There, God created human beings as the pinnacle of his creation with a unique identity and a special role. Read with me on the screen from Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see there that men and women are uniquely in creation, made in the image and likeness of God. There is something about human beings that resembles and represents God himself. As we look at other human beings, as we look at each other in this room now, we are seeing a dim reflection of the majesty of the creator God placed into his own creation. And because of that, it is fitting that human beings are given a unique role in creation. We are given the ability and the responsibility to rule over the creation. It is not a quirk of evolution that mankind is able to be and do what other creatures cannot, to speak and to think and to reason and to create and to build and to make music and to send probes into deep space and to invent sports and to worship. All those things are not because we have evolved further or differently than other creatures. It is because it is built into who we are by the creator God himself. God shares some of his majestic rule and his creative power with us, his image bearers. And all that is why it's appropriate for Luke to call Adam the son of God. In Genesis 5 verse 3, Adam and Eve bear a son called Seth, and Seth is being described as being in Adam's image and Adam's likeness. That is true of every child, isn't it? They look like their parents. Don't know who Ethan looks like yet, we'll figure that out later, but They share their attributes and characteristics and personalities. And sons represent their fathers. We have a rather quirky attitude to this in our individualistic age. We tell our children to be who they want to be, to find their own path, to break free from the shackles of generations past. That's what our world tells our children, but that is a recent and rather strange idea in the history of the world. And not necessarily a smart move for our society, I don't think. In previous times, it was expected that sons would follow in their father's footsteps. That a son would inherit the family business. That he would represent his father to the world. And that by looking at the son, you could understand the father. That if the son misbehaved, it brought shame to the father. That if the son did well, there would be honor to the father. That a good son is a credit to his father. Even in our individualistic age and society, we understand a bit of that, I think. And just by the by, I think that's why the Bible uses the language of sons to describe women as well as men. Women are sometimes called daughters in the Bible, daughters of God in the Bible, and there are children of God in the Bible mentioned. But usually, the Bible uses the word sons to describe both men and women. And that is not to sideline women, quite the opposite. It is to say that both men and women share in this sonship, in its technical sense, of being an heir, a representative, an image bearer of God who shares in the family business. And as that passage in Genesis 1 says, from the very beginning, men and women were made equally in the image of God, with equal worth and dignity and honor, as sons, or sons and daughters if you like, sons and heirs of God. In fact, it's only the Bible's view of the human person that can really account for the role that humanity plays in our world. Why do we think that men and women should be equal? It's because male and female are equally made in God's image. Why do we think that people have an inherent worth and dignity, regardless of their ability, regardless of their size or intelligence or skill? It's because we're made in the image of God's. 
Why do we as humans feel a sense of responsibility for our world? Why does David Attenborough bemoan the impact that humanity has had on the planet, but still says that we're the ones who should take responsibility for fixing the problem? Just, by the by, on a purely evolutionary worldview, that doesn't make any sense at all. We don't complain that sharks kill dolphins because they're wild animals. So why do we complain that humans kill dolphins if we're just an animal? It's because deep down, we know that we're not just another animal. Because we know that we are the stewards of God's world because we're made in his image. And we've messed it up. And it's probably our job we should get on with fixing it. Why do we think that we should fix our mistakes at all? Why do we feel some sense that we ought to make other people's lives better? Why do we care about injustice and suffering? It's because we're God's sons. We share in his rule and we care because he does. We're not just apes in trousers. We are majestic sons of God. So let me ask you this. How's it going? How does it feel to be a majestic son of God? Have you enjoyed this week having the whole created order under your feet? We have to ask the question, don't we? Is, is Psalm 8 actually realistic? Is it just wishful thinking or just plain nonsense to say that human beings are majestic sons of God with everything under their feet? It doesn't feel like that, does it? Well, Psalm 8 is not nonsense. It is true that this is who we are. But the rest of the Bible tells us we have a huge problem. There is something which stops us fulfilling the role that Psalm 8 tells us we have. And to explore that, we're going to very briefly see how the words and the ideas of Psalm 8 are picked up in three New Testament passages. We'll see the problem clearly, and then we'll see the solution. Let's begin with turning to James 3 and seeing that we are fallen sons of God. Do turn to that with me. The page number's on the screen. It's 1215, I think that says. It's a long way away. James 3... And while you're turning there, I'll tell you that the book of James, the letter that James wrote, is written to critique a kind of false religion, a kind of Christianity in name only. Uh, It's a religion that claims the name of Jesus, it claims to believe the truths of the Bible, but there's no evidence at all of changed behavior. And James's favorite word to describe this kind of false belief is double-mindedness, a kind of hypocrisy where we say we're Christians, but nothing in our life demonstrates that. Just bear that in mind as we read verse 7 to 12 of James 3. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Do you see the allusion there to Psalm 8? Human beings do demonstrate a kind of rule over the created order, don't we? We can tame other animals. We can have a measure of control over the rest of the created order. We can herd sheep. We can charm snakes. We can put dogs to work in our fields. We can remove pests from our households. 
But James points to a bitter irony. We cannot tame ourselves. We cannot control our tongues. We say things that hurt other people. We express ourselves with anger. We lose our temper. We lie. We're unkind and we don't seem to be able to stop it. Don't we all know that? Look at the language James uses to describe the tongue. He calls it restless, evil, poisonous. Have you felt that from others? Poisonous words coming from other people? Have you dished it out yourself? Of course. God's words bring life to our world, but so often our words bring death. And James says that this is true of the double-minded people he has in his sights in this letter. Verse 9, even if your tongue blesses God, even if it claims the name of Jesus, it at the same time curses those made in his likeness. Just think about that for a moment. You may know that in the Old Testament, God pronounces both blessings and curses on his world and on his people. He promises blessing to all mankind and particularly to his covenant people, but he has the right as Lord of the world to pronounce curses as well. When his people are disobedient, when they use their tongues to hurt other people, to lie, to offer worship to idols, God has the right to punish and to judge. His blessings are gracious and his curses, his judgments are righteous and good and consistent and fair. Now here in James 3, human beings pronounce blessings and curses. But unlike God's blessings and curses, they are mutually incompatible. They don't make any sense. They contradict one another. They're wildly inconsistent and unfair. They bless God. You know, they say all the right things, teach all the right doctrines. But verse 9, they curse people made in God's likeness. They bless the Father and curse the sons. Do you see that? Imagine what that would be like in our relationships. Imagine if I came up to you and said, do you know, I just think you are fantastic. I love everything about you. I'm so glad to know you. But I do think your children are absolutely awful, just dreadful human beings. Now, you and I would not get on very well after that, would we? My praise of you wouldn't cut it. It would be completely undone by my arrogant, judgmental attitude on those who bear your likeness. If I hate your children, I can't really claim to love you because they're like you. Now, James's point is that we shouldn't see that kind of thing in our churches. But this is what we do see in our hearts and in our worlds. And that's because of what James says in verses 10 to 12 with that image of a spring bubbling forth in water. Do you remember that teaching that we heard from Jesus in Matthew 16, that all the vicious and poisonous and evil things that come out of our mouths flow out from our hearts? It's not just the occasional naughty word or slip of the tongue that's the problem. The evil that we can do with our lips is an overflow of our heart, which is corrupted and deadly like a spring of salt water. If our role as humans is to resemble and represent God as his sons, there is a fatal flaw. Not in God's design, God's design is perfect, but in our choice to rebel against that design. You see, we are not satisfied to follow our father into the family business. We want to usurp him. 
We want not just to resemble him, but to take him down and put ourselves in his place. That desire to break off the shackles of previous generations and go our own way is just the latest manifestation of an ancient idea that we know better than God and we'd be better off without him. The very first son of Adam, Cain, thought that. He murdered his brother Abel, another man made in God's image, because Abel was offering true worship to God and Cain didn't like it. Cain did not behave like a son of God. He hated and murdered a son of God. And when Jesus was on earth, we saw another example of that. The Pharisees did the same to him, didn't they? They hated and murdered Jesus. And Jesus called them, do you remember, sons of your father, the devil. They did not behave like sons of God. They behaved like sons of Satan. And the whole of mankind, one way or another, follows in their footsteps. And that brings us to the second quote from Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2. Would you turn there with me back a few pages? Page something, something. 1202, thank you. 1202. In the book of Hebrews, the author has spent the first chapter proving that Jesus is greater than the angels. That's what he's been doing for chapter one. That he's greater than the greatest messengers of the Old Testament. He's proved that by saying that the angels themselves worship Jesus as God. And that you can see it in the Old Testament itself. But now he says something strange. He says that Jesus is going to rule over the worlds to come, over the new creation. But He doesn't say that's because he's God. No, Jesus is going to rule over the new creation because he is man. Read with me from verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I wonder if you spotted the really, really heartbreaking sentence in the middle of that quote. It's in the second half of verse 8. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. It's remarkably understated in here, but that is a heartbreaking sentence. God's design for this world, that it should be ruled over by his sons, by men and women made in his image, and therefore it should flourish under their care, is just not what we see. It's an outworking of the effects of what we saw in James 3. The heart of mankind is meant to be like a spring of fresh water, nourishing the earth, bringing life, healing relationships. Instead, it's like a spring of salt water, killing everything it comes into contact with. This is life in our world, isn't it? Under God's curse, under his judgment, and full of the cursing of mankind as we curse each other. It's a heartbreaking little sentence. Psalm 8 isn't working. So praise God for verse 9. But we see Jesus. What do you see when you look at Jesus of Nazareth? 
What did people see when they encountered him in the flesh when he was on earth? They saw the Son of God. They saw a man who perfectly resembled and represented God, God himself in the flesh, perfectly God and perfectly man. So what would you expect to see when you see a perfect son of God? Well, given Psalm 8, you would expect him to perfectly rule over creation, wouldn't you? And that's precisely what we see. We see him express his total, uninhibited control over all things, over nature, over sickness, over spiritual powers. You know, when we read about that, we, we can think to ourselves, ah, there you're seeing the power of God in action. This is because Jesus is God, and that's not wrong, it is. But perhaps we're also seeing the kind of rule that Adam was meant to have. We're seeing the perfect man. We're seeing the perfect son of God. But Jesus didn't only have perfect control over creation, he also had perfect control over himself. In James 3 verse 2, which we didn't get a chance to look at before, James says that the tongue is so powerful that anybody who is never at fault in what he says must be a perfect man. If you can control your tongue, you can control anything. Well, that is the man that we see when we look at Jesus. He never sinned in thoughts, words, or deed. After spending three years with this man, one of his disciples said that he was full of grace and truth. I wonder what people would say you were full of after spending three solid years with you. If you spent three years with me, you wouldn't call me full of grace and truth, I tell you. But that is who Jesus is. He's full of grace and truth. Here is someone who resembles and represents God perfectly. That was what Jesus was like when he walked among us. That's what Jesus was like when he went to the cross for us. As verse 9 says, tasting death for everyone, taking on himself the curse of God for all our double-mindedness, all our arrogance, all our poisonous speech, every step we walked in Satan's footsteps, powerfully, kindly, graciously stooping down to rescue his people, just like God's. That is God's family business, and Jesus is God's true son. Do you remember that the Roman centurion, as he saw how Jesus died, said, surely this man was the son of God. As he looked at the cross, he saw God imaged and reflected to him. And he gave glory to the Father for the work of the Son. And so look what happens in Jesus' resurrection in verse 9. Jesus' resurrection crowns Jesus with glory and honor. Now remember, those are still words from Psalm 8. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus puts mankind back where they were always supposed to be, majestically sharing God's rule. That is why the resurrection is a powerful declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. It's God restoring the original design for his creation, putting a new and better Adam at the head of his world. But it's not just Jesus who gets to enjoy this new creation rule. We'll explore this a lot more next week, but look how the letter continues in verse 10. He says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of your congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Jesus is the perfect son of God. But God's plan was not to have one person rule on his own over this world. It was for humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to flood the earth with the image of God. And so God's plan, verse 10, is to bring many sons to glory. To restore many men and women, boys and girls, back to their unique role. As people submit themselves to Jesus and accept his rule and accept his forgiveness, they become sons of God with him. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts and begins to free us from double-mindedness and enable us to start living in line with God's design once again. And so because of Jesus' resurrection, where he is declared with power to be the son of God, so we who belong to him can look forward to our final resurrection too. Let's turn then to our final quote from Psalm 8, much more briefly, as we consider the risen sons of God. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1, 1, 5, 6. 1 Corinthians 15. And let's read Paul's summary, really, the whole gospel. The whole good news of Jesus can be summarized in two verses in verse 21 and 22. Let's read those. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you see there the whole of the story of the Son of God encapsulating those two sentences? Two sons of God in view, Adam and Christ. The heads of two humanities. The old humanity, that majestic ruined creation, the sons of Adam are all alike under the curse of death. In Adam all die. Those who walk in his footsteps share his fate. They will end up in the grave. All of that glory and dignity reduced to dust and ashes. But in Christ, all will be made alive. Those who walk in Christ's footsteps, who put their trust in him, will follow him through death to the other side, to their own resurrection. And what comes next? Verse 23, look at that with me. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Paul says there that Jesus must reign. Do you see why? He must reign because God's design must flourish. 
The new humanity must rule over the new creation. All other dominions which set themselves up against God must be cast down. And every deadly enemy of God, every poisonous tongue from the first whisper of the serpent to the last skeptical sneer of the persecutor must be silenced and defeated. And what will remain when that happens for the rest of time is a world reordered, put right, put back right side up. In the fall, everything was turned upside down. The serpent's lie setting the agenda for humanity. The woman and the man deciding what was good and evil for themselves. The mouths that were meant to bring blessing, cursing God and cursing those made in God's image. But here it's restored. Instead of mankind putting themselves above God, they are in Christ who as a perfect man is submissive to God and everything else is under the feet. That glorious design, God's rule, mediated through his image bearers, the son sharing the family business, gladly working alongside their father to tame the wilderness and make it a garden. This is the vision of Psalm 8 finally working again. And with that order in place, creation can once again flourish as it was always meant to do in the new creation. This is where our world is heading. This is what we have to look forward to, what Paul calls in Romans 8, the glorious freedom of the children of God. So as we conclude, and and really, we really have only scratched the surface, I want to draw three implications for us. Firstly, find your salvation in the risen Jesus. I'm talking probably to you if you're not yet a Christian with this one. The Bible tells us really clearly that only Jesus can restore our humanity. I think everyone can see and admit that there is a real brokenness to our world, can't we? There is something badly wrong with our human condition and many well-meaning people are trying to fix it. Trying to make life work. Trying to make the world work. We try with technology and scientific advances that ease some of the burden of our suffering. We look to education to try and help people be kinder to this world and kinder to each other. We cry out for justice and a better political system. And all of those things have their place and they're all good to pursue and to explore. But none of them is going to stop the rot. None of them will stop the deadly poison, the spring of salt water coming out of our hearts and our mouths and seeping into every corner of our world. We need something much more radical, a fresh start, a new humanity, a new creation. And that can only be found in the risen Jesus, the one declared with power to be the Son of God. And so if you have not yet put your trust in him, if you've not yet asked him to be your representative and submitted yourself to his rule and begged for his forgiveness, then I would urge you, do it now. Find your salvation in the risen Jesus. And if that's you, we'd love to help you do that. Come and talk to me afterwards if you want to do that. Secondly, look for your pattern in the risen Jesus. Jesus Christ teaches us what true humanity really looks like. What does it mean to live well as a human being? How do we do it? We could look to all sorts of role models, couldn't we? We could define success a thousand different ways, but Jesus shows us what perfect humanity really is. He shows us what success really looks like. 
We've seen it all the way through the book of Matthew as we've been studying it over the last 10 weeks. We've seen Jesus care for others, haven't we? We've seen his submission to God's plan. We've seen his patience in suffering. We've seen his other person-centered grace. And we've seen that he is committed to the growth of God's kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is bearing fruit and multiplying as people hear the gospel and become part of the new humanity in Jesus. And so if we want to live well in God's world now, if we want to live like sons of God, we must follow in the footsteps of the Son of God. Committed to the values of the kingdom, grace, patience, suffering for others. And committed to proclaiming the gospel which brings people back to true humanity. Find your salvation in the risen Jesus. Look for your pattern in the risen Jesus. And finally, put your hope in the risen Jesus. We still live now in this fallen world, in the mess of life, in the frustration of the curse where things don't work properly, where we don't have the control over life that we crave, where we hurt other people, where we are hurt by other people, where Psalm 8 doesn't quite ring true. When we feel that frustration, we think there's no way, there's no way out, we must find our hope in the risen Jesus. He is risen. He's crowned with glory and honor. He is our man in heaven. He is what we were always meant to be and what one day we will be. And so let us look to him. Let's pray for his coming. Let's ask for his help to persevere in the frustration until the creation is brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the risen Son of God, that he is the perfect man, able to control creation and able to control himself. Thank you that he never sinned, that he always represented you, and that now he lives to reign. Thank you that all enemies are defeated in the cross, and the last enemy to be defeated is death, and that enemy will be defeated too when Jesus returns and is revealed as the King, the Son of God in heaven. We pray, Father, that that day would come soon. And as we wait and as we handle the, the hardness and the frustration of life in a fallen world and we, we live with ourselves and the way we disappoint others and the way we disappoint ourselves and the way we sin, please keep helping us look to Jesus for forgiveness to look for him for pattern, for the pattern for strength, to live for your kingdom and to look to him for hope. We pray, Father, that um, when he returns, he would find us trusting in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.